be here with all of you, and what a privilege to be here with my sisters in Christ under the teaching of God's precious word. What a blessing, and thank you all for making sacrifices to come here, and so you can encourage me, and I can encourage you in our discussion groups afterwards. My heart needs this, and I'm so thankful for all you guys. So today I'd like to share one way that a precious passage from God's word has come to bear on all aspects of my life, and um, disciplines one, two, and three are simply that. We don't talk about the disciplines for the discipline's sake. These disciplines are simply a way that God's word affects all arenas of our life. So um, let's flip our notebooks over. Um, But first, before we read the disciplines, let's read God's Word. Uh, Last week, Lori talked about looking for themes in the Word of God. And a theme that I've noticed in the Psalms portion of my reading especially is the theme of firmly fixing your hope in the Lord. Um, And Psalm 33, 18-22 is just a really sweet example of this. Um, So I'll start with verse 18 of Psalm 33. It says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. So first of all, just starting at the beginning of the passage, uh, what are the characteristics of one whose soul has been delivered by God from death? Verse 18 says they hope in his loving kindness. Um, They wait for the Lord in verse 20. Their heart rejoices in him. They trust in his holy name. And it repeats again at the end in verse 22. They hope in him. So ladies, I'd just like to ask you, are you hoping in the Lord? Maybe right now our answer would be yes, but I know if you ask me that question throughout my week, say on Monday morning when I wake up early, or in the middle of a busy Wednesday afternoon, or on Saturday when I'm tired and heading to bed, my answer would often be no. Our hearts are prone to wander. That's why we need discipline one. Every day we must prayerfully shepherd our hearts to God through his word, particularly the gospel. Seek to know this God in whom is our hope. Spending time each day growing to know him better is the only thing that gives me strength and stamina for whatever challenges my day may bring. Um, I have a really sweet job. I'll talk about this more in a few minutes with ministry, but I'm a nurse. I'm a heart nurse. And I work at a hospital in Central Phoenix where the patients come from very diverse walks of life. Uh, I love it. I wouldn't trade my job for any other hospital. Um, Some patients and their families are amazing and sweet and appreciative, but... um, Other times I get the privilege of caring for people that are more difficult to love. And um, I'll I'll be honest, it's not always easy to provide hands-on, messy kind of care to people that curse at you every time you walk in the room. Or or to serve a person whose mind has been so damaged by street drugs that they get physically aggressive or impulsive and don't appreciate the ways that you've tried to save their life. On days like this, it's, it's harder for me to rejoice. So what do we do? We just go back to the Word. One thing that helps me is to open my Bible app on my phone at the end of my quiet time and um, set it to a particular verse that stood out to me during my reading. And that way, when I get a lunch break and pull out my phone again, that verse is right there. I can't ignore it. (laughs) Because our hearts need frequent reminders to hope in God. So, discipline two is the home. Our notebooks say, She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. 
I'd like to read verse 21 of Psalm 33 again. It says, For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Isn't that interesting that trusting in his name actually feeds our emotions? It fuels our joy? I can tell you that the way I respond to my day has a direct impact on the people in my home. Every word or attitude that comes out of me will either edify or discourage those I live with. Right now, I live with my sister, my brother, and my parents. As five very different adults living in one busy house, we have a lot of opportunities to sin against each other or to actually build each other up. Um, if I come home from work with an attitude of self-reliance, self-centeredness, or even self-pity, that doesn't minister to them. I'm actually tearing them down and making it harder for them to love God. Um, I want my heart to be so trusting in God's word that my actions, attitudes, and words toward my family are filled with joy in him. That actually bolsters their affections for God and encourages them in their walks with God. See, I've learned you don't have to be a mother with young children in order to have an influence on your home. Whether you're single, a busy mama, an empty nester, or maybe you live by yourself, everyone who comes into your home will either be built up or torn down as a result of the way you shepherd your heart toward God. Praise God that his word is powerful enough to transform us, starting with our hearts and extending into every attitude and interaction we have with those in our homes. So the last discipline is ministry. And I often skip over the word discipline and fail to realize that this is a self-discipline. It takes intentionality. So I just have to ask, are you disciplining yourself in such a way that your life is an effective tool for the Lord to use? Our notebook says, with a heart for God and the gospel and for fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. I used to think that ministry was just associated with big visible things like a large shepherding role or leading the church in some way, but I have lately come to realize that ministry is simply being a faithful witness of Christ wherever the Lord puts me. For me, this takes the form of being a truly humble servant at my job. One day I had a patient who was unusually furious, demanding, and verbally abusive. And the Holy Spirit just enables me to walk in patience and gentleness without gossiping or complaining. By God's grace, this led to opportunities with my other patients and several of my coworkers. When they asked why I was able to stay so calm, I got to tell them about the hope that I had. My hope isn't in this life. One day Jesus will come back and I'll actually see my Savior, my King who died for me. But until then, no one can treat me as badly as I deserve. Maybe your ministry's at your job. Maybe you're faithfully gospelizing your neighbors. Maybe your ministry is having intentional conversations with the ladies in your small group or the moms in your kids' carpool, encouraging them with what God has taught you that week in his word. You're never too young, too new to the faith, too old, too busy, too single to be used by the Lord right where you're at. I've learned it's not complicated. Ministry is, just means being genuine and authentic as a follower of Christ in every relationship that God puts you in. So let's be ladies who are diligent to place our hope in God at the beginning of each day. Let's allow this heart attitude to influence our interactions in every relationship in our home. And let's be ladies whose trust in God permeates every aspect of our lives, whether we interact with the lost in the world or with our brothers and sisters at church, pointing everyone to our hope that's in God.
unfaithful or what, I, I am so encouraged to hear the things that God has taught you, what this ministry has taught you, and uh, thank you for sharing so much on discipline number three. That, that was so impactful. I hope that we all realize that we have ministry opportunities everywhere. We have to wait till a certain point in our life. They're there. We just need to ask God to help us to see them. So thank you so much for sharing. Well, this morning we are going to look at the life of a woman who was known for her wisdom and discretion. She was a woman who was ready to speak truth when truth needed to be heard. So the account of Abigail's life is in 1 Samuel 25, and it's part of your homework. You all read that, right? At least I hope so. Um, the, the passage, This passage in 1 Samuel 25 um, is a narrative. And so there are some things that we need to remember when we are reading a narrative in Scripture. And these are in your outline. So I just want to go over them this morning because I, I think they're really helpful. So the first one you have written down there is that the main character in the hero is always God. I think it can be tempting for us to focus in on the players that God has like set up on his stage and uh, to see them, like someone like Abigail, and to think of her as the hero. God obviously does use her, yes, um, there's a lot to learn from her, that's why we're going to look at her life this morning, but we can't miss the one who is at work through his players, and, and the one who is faithful to keep his promises. He's the one who faithfully works in the lives of those whom he chooses to use for his purposes. And we're going to see that in the life of Abigail this morning, we'll see it in David, we'll even see it in Nabal. And then the second one, there are many um, details that are given as we read any narrative in scripture, but there are also many details that are not given. And so we need to be very careful that we don't read more into a narrative than what is um, actually written. We are given just what we need to know. At the same time, because we are reading an historical narrative, we can't forget that we're reading about real people and real places at a real point in time in history. And so understanding that historical context will help us to rightly understand the information that is given. So for instance, in this narrative in 1 Samuel 25, it takes place during that transition time of the judges. They do have a king, Saul, but overall, people still are doing what's right in their own eyes. And then number four, not everything that's written in a narrative is to be taken as something to apply. Okay, I'm going to say it again because it's so important. Not everything that's written in a narrative is to be taken as something that is to be applied. It may simply be telling us what happened. It may not tell us, for example, if someone is making a good choice or why it's made. It's simply informing us of what the character did. Okay, so let's keep those in mind as we look at our passage. Before we do, I would like to again pray. So, Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us your word. Father, we want to be women who know your word, who love your word, because it reveals you. 
We want to be women who are obedient to the things that you call us to, to your commands. And so, Father, we um, humbly place ourselves um, beneath your word this morning. We pray that you would teach us. We know your word is powerful, and we pray that it would impact our hearts. Father, there is much to learn about the characters that we're going to look at this morning, but most of all, uh, my prayer is that we would see you, that it would impact our own hearts, and that we would know then how to encourage our sisters in Christ. So we thank you, Father, I pray that uh, you would use your word mightily in our lives, because that's our desire, it's our prayer this morning. And uh, so we ask you in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, well, let's read um, chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. It's a long chapter, but we're going to read it all the way from verse 1 to the beginning of verse 39. So if you haven't, if you open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. And as you read, um, you'll see the word Lord used um, in three different ways. The first time I read through this, it was a little confusing, so it helped me to kind of stop and, and to think. So you'll see it used with a lowercase l. Um, two ways when it refers to Nabal and when it refers to David, okay, and that simply um, means master. And then you'll also see it um, used in all uppercase letters, and obviously that refers to the Lord, to God, so... Um, before I read, though, I wanted to give you just a little bit of background into the context of, ch of chapter uh, 25. So in 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul is king. He's disobedient to the Lord, and Samuel told Saul that because he, because he re had rejected the word of the Lord, that the Lord had rejected him from being king over Israel. And it says that Samuel grieved over the sin of Saul. So it's pretty obvious that he that Samuel loved God, he loved God's people, and he grieved over Saul's sin. And then in chapter 16, God tells Samuel that he has selected a new king, and he promises to show Samuel who is to replace Saul. So obviously God cho chose David out of all of the sons of Jesse, and uh, he anointed him as king. And it was, again, it was the prophet Samuel who anointed him as the next king over Israel. So Saul is fueled by jealousy, and he is set out to kill his successor, David. We know from chapter 19 that as David was on the run trying to escape the wrath of Saul, that he went to Ramah, and it tells us that Samuel was there with him. We also know from chapter 12 that Samuel was a constant intercessor for Israel, praying daily for them. So that's just a little background, so now let's pick up in chapter 25. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him in his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So the fact that all Israel assembled to mourn Samuel's death tells us that, that Samuel's role as prophet and a godly leader was recognized um, by the nation of Israel as a blessing for the nation. So I don't want us to miss the significance of this great prophet's death to Israel and to David uh, personally. David's advisor and confidant had died, and David, along with the nation, is plunged into deep grief. It seems 
that this is a very dark period in David's life. So let's continue reading. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, and then it gives us some information about him, that the man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. And then it continues to tell us what happened while Nabal's sheep were being sheared. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal's sheep, that, excuse me, that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal's Nabal answered David's servant and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while they were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. 
May God do to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and mounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed before her and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because the Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to, to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when, the Lord and when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed, shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has restrained me from harming you unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from evil. So there is much to be gleaned from Abigail's life, as well as those who were in her life. 
So we'll see this morning how God used Abigail to protect those in her household, as well as David, God's chosen king of Israel. Now, in order to understand the role that David played and how God used her, we need to look at two other people in her life. So the first one is Abigail's husband, Nabal. So the first thing that this passage tells us about Nabal is that he had a business and that he was very wealthy. Now, most commentators believe that having been a descendant of Caleb or a Calebite, as it tells us in verse 3, meant that he would have inherited the land around Hebron, which may mean that that was the source of his wealth, not necessarily hard work or a good businessman. Another thing that's important for us to know is that names in the Old Testament had a greater significance than they do today. The significance of a name often played a bearing on what God was doing in that life or often revealed the character of that person. So the name Nabal means fool or senseless. In verse 25, Abigail said of her husband Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. And we know from just having read the passage that Nabal was indeed a foolish man. Listen to what scripture says about a foolish person, keeping in mind um, Nabal and what we just read about him. Psalm 14.1 says the fool, and by the way, the Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. So the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That kind of person is one who is full of pride. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 28.26, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. And I think this one is so interesting in light of um, our passage this morning, Isaiah 32, 6. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness, and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, and to withhold drink from the thirsty. So the text also tells us that Nabal was harsh, unkind, deceptive, selfish, worthless, a drunkard, arrogant, and unapproachable. And he was evil in his dealings, not just occasionally, but the idea is that it was his practice, his habit. And what was the source of Nabal's evil dealings? Anyone guess? Yes, it was his heart. Those evil dealings were an overflow of his heart. So that gives us a glimpse into the kind of man that Nabal was on a heart level. So now we have this foolish, prideful man, and he had a wife whose name was Abigail. So let's look at how this passage describes her. Verse 3 tells us that she was intelligent and she was beautiful in appearance. She was in intelligent. Now the word used here means more than what we would tend to think of when we think of the word intelligent. It means goodness 
or having desirable or positive qualities. It means to be prudent or sensible. Other versions of the Bible translate this word for intelligent in verse 3 is wise, having good understanding or discerning. So, let's stop and think about this, about the passage and how it describes this husband and this wife. We have this beautiful, wise woman, and she is married to a foolish man. Is it possible for a woman married to that kind of a man to glorify God? Yes. I think it will become evident as we continue. Now, you might be thinking, what happened to Chris's notes? They just disappeared. <laughs> Excuse me, one second. I hope not. I'm so sorry. Okay, you might be thinking, how did these two end up married, right? Does that cross anyone's mind? Well, there are some things that we need to understand about the culture in which Abigail lived. Abigail lived in a time where marriages were arranged. And so often the best women, for example, the most beautiful women, were given to wealthy men. And not only was Abigail in what had to have been a very difficult marriage, but she also had no children. Again, in that culture, there was a lot of shame tied to being childless. What a challenging life for Abigail. Now, remembering the names, that uh, the significance of names that they often held in the Old Testament, again, revealing the character of that person, I want to point out the meaning of Abigail's name. Where we saw that, the, that Nabal's name meant fool, Abigail's name meant cause of joy. And we'll see cause of joy. And we'll see how that indeed revealed her character. Now the other person that we need to look at is David. This glimpse into David's life at this point in time helps us to see so clearly that we must never neglect to shepherd our heart, to watch over it with all diligence, understanding how weak we can become when we are not determined, focused on putting our trust in God in every circumstance. We see from so many places in Scripture that David knew how to guard his heart. We see that in chapter 23, when Saul is set on killing David, and the men of Kali were going to deliver him over to Saul. What did David do? He escaped. He didn't retaliate. He just ran from the evil plotted against him. In chapter 24, Saul continued to hunt down David with the purpose of putting him to death. And what does David do in that long-lived trial? He trusted God, and he guarded his heart from doing evil. We also see this when David and his men were hiding in the cave, and Saul then entered that cave. Do you remember that situation? David could have seen that as the perfect opportunity to end his life of running and the constant threat of his life. 
And to make it even more challenging, we see in verse 4 that even David's men encouraged him to take matters into his own hand. But though the Lord had anointed David as king, he refused to harm Saul because he knew that it wasn't his place to raise a hand against Saul. He was trusting God to avenge him. So that's how we find David guarding his heart right before this chapter with Abigail. Now let's look at what happens right after this encounter. Let's jump ahead to chapter 26. In verse 1, we see that the Ziphites betrayed David. What does David do? He just goes. He leaves. Again, no retaliation. And then we find David um, again with yet another opportunity to end Saul's life and with it the threat to his own. David came to the place where Saul was camped and found Saul and his men asleep. And do you remember what was there with Saul? There was a spear right at his head. Being persuaded by Abishai, who was with David, telling him, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Please, he pleaded with him, let me strike him with a spear. David's reply shows his fear of the Lord and his trust in him. When he said, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. David walked away. So again, we see evidence that David knew how to guard his heart well. And he knew how to, to trust God with his plan rather than to take matters into his own hand. David chose to stay on the run in hiding rather than sin against God. David had great restraint and self-control. He was willing to wait and to trust God in his timing. David was a man who later on in history would be known as a man after God's own heart. So now inserted into, in between those accounts, we find David and his men in the wilderness in Paran. He was there protecting Nabal's sheep and the shepherds from tribes who might come in and try and steal the livestock or to bring harm to the shepherds who were watching over those sheep. And David's character is revealed even in that. We see that he was willing to work, though he was a king, in order to provide for his own needs and also the needs of the 600 men who were with him. It was because of David and his men that Nabal's sheep prospered. And so according to the custom of that, of that day, at the time the sheep were being sheared, it was common for the owner of the flocks to set aside a portion of the profits that he made and to give it to those who had protected his flocks and also the shepherds while they were out in the fields. David and his men had been faithful in watching out for Nabal's shepherds and flocks. And so when he heard that Nabal's sheep were being sheared, David reasoned that he would be paid for his work. So it was not at all unreasonable for David then to ask Nabal to respond <coughs> kindly to him. And so in verse 5, we see that David sent 10 of his men to remind Nabal of how he had profited because of David and his men. 
and to ask Nabal for whatever payment he thought was appropriate. And then they were to bring it back to David. So let's look again at verses 5 through 9. So David sent ten young men and told them to go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words. In David's name, then they waited. So David's request of Nabal through his servants showed the epitome of courtesy. They asked in a very respectful manner. They didn't demand a certain amount, but they left it up to Nabal's discretion. And even referring to David as your son was a sign of respect. It showed that they esteemed Nabal because of his position of authority, like an employee to his boss. It seems that David, again, truly was trusting God to provide for him and for his men through Nabal. Now, in that culture, Nabal had the choice of how generous of a gift he wanted to give. But being unwilling to give anything, even bread and water, although not generous, even that would have been acceptable. But in spite of David's job well done and humble approach, Nabal not only refused any payment for David and his men, but his response was rude and insulting. He chose to return evil for good. Now look again at Nabal's response to David's men in verse 10. Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many shepherds nowadays, excuse me, there are many servants nowadays who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? In his response, Nabal accused David of being an insignificant man, a runaway slave, rather than God's chosen king of Israel. Nabal offended David by treating him as a rebel whose request you don't really even need to take into consideration. Nabal's attitude was lofty and self-centered. He withheld what was rightly due David. Now, remember what verse 2 said about Nabal? He was a very rich man. He had the means to give David and his men a very generous gift for their services. And yet, he was unwilling to even recognize the care that that David and his men had given to him, from which he benefited, unwilling to provide them with the basics of bread and water. And he even justified his own greed by pleading ignorance. This disrespectful act of ignorance of David was surely a pretense. The knowledge of this young king-elect was widespread. 
Nabal pretended not to know to excuse his unwillingness to do what was right. And there are at least two things in the passage that help us to see that. In verse 10, Nabal said, and who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? So I think Nabal at least knew who David's father was. And we'll see later that Abigail clearly understood God's call on David's life. So it's hard to imagine how she could have known that. And yet her powerful, wealthy businessman husband did not. So now let's look um, at the verse that describes David's response to this. In verse 22, we see that David is at this point in his life now set on avenging this wrong. In verse 13, he said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. And David also girded on his sword and about 400 men went up behind David. Now, We all know what 400 men with swords intend to do, right? David was acting impulsively and actually had resolved to kill and to take his own vengeance. What happened? Does that sound like the David in the cave who spared Saul's life? and prevented others from killing Saul even when they had perfect opportunities to do so? Does that sound like the David who, during his fight with the insulting giant Goliath, thought only of the honor of the living God? It was sinful pride for Nabal to withhold any kind of recognition for the service that he had received. But David the remarkable man of God who modeled patience for years under the unjust treatment of Saul, seemed to have lost sight of God's promises and his need to guard his heart. And that doesn't just happen to David, does it? Now it certainly appears here that David had anger burning in his heart. Because it wasn't enough for him just to get even by taking Nabal's life. But his plan was to take all of the men in Nabal's household. Remember, he had 400 men with him. He wanted Nabal's entire household to be utterly destroyed. This would have included skilled workers and shepherds as well as his extended family members. They weren't all guilty of pridefully withholding from David. Yet David doesn't take that into consideration. What does this tell us about David's hearts? About our own hearts? Outside pressure often reveals areas of weakness, showing us where our trust in God is weak. And when our hearts are left unguarded, We are vulnerable to all kinds of sin. Isn't this true for all of us? We may have been in a good place yesterday. We may find ourselves in a good place tomorrow. But there could be something that blindsides us in the very next circumstance that we face that could cause us to give in to temptation. And so we must prepare for it now. With all that we've learned about the heart in Wellspring, doesn't that just remind us how much we need to be in God's word for the purpose of knowing 
Him so that we are ready to trust Him when circumstances catch us off guard. Why? Because we live in a mixed condition. We are capable of trusting God one minute and turning from His ways the next. It's sobering to read this passage, isn't it? And to see what our own hearts are all capable of. And yet, we see God's grace in turning David back from this sin by using two people, an unnamed servant of Nabal's and Abigail. Let's first look at the young man in Nabal's household. I want us to see the wisdom that he displayed by his choice in going to Abigail with the information that he had received. Let's read what the young man told Abigail. Start in verse 14. He said, The men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master, against your husband, and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. See, this young man obviously knew his master. He knew Nabal. He knew that he was a foolish man. And he also knew that his own life was at stake. And so I think he demonstrated great wisdom in his decision of going to Abigail and to tell her of David's care over the flocks and of Nabal's withholding from David and David's evil plan of revenge. If he had not gone to Abigail, she would not have known about the situation and therefore would not have had the opportunity to intervene. So, okay, let me just stop and say, are you guys all okay? Or do you, does anyone need a break? Or are we good to keep going? We good? Okay. So, now Abigail had choices to make. She could have done nothing. Now, I, I have no idea if this thought went through Abigail's mind. But... She knew her husband. She told David he was worthless. He was a fool. If he had done nothing, she would have been rid of, a, of, a, of an awful husband and a difficult marriage. But Abigail did the exact opposite. Instead of sitting back and letting the harm he deserved come to him, she took action to protect her foolish husband and her household. Proverbs 31.12 tells us that an excellent wife brings her husband good and not harm all the days of her life. It does not say that she does it if he deserves it. Abigail also could have ignored the danger that David, the future king of Israel, was in. She could have chosen not to protect him from sinning, but she doesn't ignore it. A discerning woman is concerned to view things from God's perspective and to respond in a way that honors God. Abigail protected her husband and David, not because they warranted it, 
but because it was what honored God. And she lost no time in doing it. Would you mind just reading that statement before we fill in the blanks one more? Of course. A discerning woman is concerned to view things from God's perspective and to respond in a way that honors God. So that's what Abigail wanted to do. Again, she lost no time in doing it. She, res- she didn't give herself time to fall into s- to the temptation to sinfully respond or even to be lazy in responding. But she acted quickly in doing what was right. Because remember, there's someone else who's acting quickly, right? David and his 400 armed men ready to slaughter this entire household. Abigail shows wisdom in acting quickly. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. Now, just inserted, remember what's going on. This is a festive time because sheep are being sheared. I really don't think that this was like, you know, just in her pantry. This 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 was prepared for a reason, okay? Um, so then she uh, loaded them on her donkeys, and she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. So she shows wisdom in sending the men ahead of her with the food to soften David's heart and to cool his anger so that her words of truth would be received. Now, you might be wondering, why did Abigail not tell her husband? And the answer is, We don't know, (laughs) because scripture doesn't tell us. Remember, we're reading a narrative portion of scripture. It's just telling us what happened. I do. I think it's reasonable to conclude that Abigail didn't keep this from her husband for her own benefit, but rather out of protection for him and her, her household. I believe she acted in wisdom, knowing it would bring honor to God and good to many. Abigail was concerned about her household, again, protecting God's honor and removing a stumbling block from David. Let's think about what this chapter says. It describes Abigail as intelligent and discerning. The servant appealed to Abigail when Nabal responded so badly and was unapproachable, implying that he knew her to be approachable and wise and concerned with the welfare of her household. Remember, he ended his appeal with the words, Now therefore know and consider what you should do. Hmm. Abigail acted in a moment of great danger and peril both to her own household as well as to David and the role to which God had ordained him. Also, David blesses God, Abigail's discernment, and Abigail herself for her intervention. She told Nabal what she had done when Nabal was sober the next day. So I believe that this shows her intent was not to deceive him, She spoke with great humility, 
She spoke truth. She acted with great courage in the face of two men who were in sin, both her husband and David. And it appears that sitting back and doing nothing, just trusting the Lord to intervene, would have been wrong. It would have been failing to do good and to prevent evil when it was within her power to act. And it appears that from Abigail's perspective, that she was bound to do what she could to avert the tragedy. And that she reasoned David was more likely to be influenced by a biblical appeal since no one can speak to Nabal. So let's continue on. In verses 21 and 22, it shows Abigail then going to meet David. We find David and his men coming toward Nabal's household. And listen to what's on David's mind. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned evil for good. May God do to the enemies of David and more, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. It seems that David had actually regretted the good that he had the good care that he had given to Nabal's shepherds. From his perspective, it seems that he now saw it as a waste of time, as having no purpose. And he was determined to get revenge. Where was David's focus now? It was on the one who had offended him. And so Abigail meets up with David. David, And now let's look at her response in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, and I think this is so interesting. Do you know that this is one of the longest discourses in the Bible given by a woman? It's full of wisdom and good theology. And it's a great example of how to appeal to someone, especially someone in authority. Abigail said to him, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for you an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you all the days of your life. Abigail comes as a godly woman ready to speak truth to David. And did you notice she's the only one recorded that does speak truth to him? So let's see this again. Let's look at it again and see her godly character in her powerful message. What do we see? 
First of all, we see great humility in verse 23. Abigail's dismounting in the presence of David shows, first of all, that she saw him as her superior. It was the highest demonstration of respect that you could show anyone in that culture. Bowing herself to the ground would have shown David her attitude, that she was coming to make full amends for the disrespect shown by her husband. It also communicated that she recognized and respected David as the future king. The second thing we see is a gentle and gracious appeal to David to redirect his focus away from the offender in verse 25. When she says, please do not pay attention to the wor that worthless man, Nabal. She wanted to take his focus off of the offender. And then number three, she wanted David to see God's protection of him. We see that in verse 26, when she tells David, the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood by avenging yourself by your own hand. Number four, she acknowledged the offense and seeks to right the wrong that was committed against him by bringing a generous gift for David's men. And then in verse 28, Abigail said, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Now, it's not clear, at least to me, why Abigail felt that it was necessary for her to seek forgiveness from David. But in her doing so, you see the great humility. It seems that Abigail wanted to take every obstacle out of the way in order to put David's focus back on the Lord. Abigail declared with certainty the things that were true about the Lord in his protection of David. In verses 29 through 31, she continues to point David back to God. She encouraged David to look forward and to think about why he will be glad that he turns from this sin. And then in verse 32, we see how truth diffused David's anger. Truth diffused David's anger. First, he blessed the Lord, and then he recognized that it was God who had sent Abigail. She was God's chosen messenger to speak God's truth when truth needed to be spoken. Abigail was ready to speak truth when it needed to be heard. This account ends in verses 36 with Abigail going home. When Nabal was sober, she told him all that had happened, and it says that his heart died within him. And ten days later, who was it that struck Nabal? The Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Look again at verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil, the Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. God had protected David and proved to him once again that he could be trusted to deal with a foolish man. 
that David didn't need to take vengeance when evil was returned to, for good. Now I want to end with just some thoughts for you to consider. I'd like for you just to listen. These are going to be written, written out in your homework so you don't need to write them down. But it'll also give you opportunity to think about them throughout the next couple weeks. So the first thing I want you to, to just think about, is it possible that God used marriage to a foolish, harsh man to teach Abigail how to make a humble, gentle appeal that, were that would prepare her to one day appeal to David and to protect him from sin that would have great consequences. Are you willing to trust God with the circumstances that he places in your life, knowing that he causes all things to work together for good and for his glory? And then what will you do now so that you will be able to guard your heart and to strengthen your trust in God where it's weak? Do you know where you are prone to get blindsided or to get thrown off guard? How can you prepare for that? To be thinking as a discerning woman so that your thoughts are aligned with God's thoughts. And so that you respond in a way that honors God. A discerning woman is concerned to view things from God's perspective and to respond in a way that honors God. May we grow in our discernment as we seek to honor God. Let's pray. Father, we... We want to be women who are concerned for your glory. We pray that that would be the greatest desire of our hearts in every circumstance that we face. Father, we know that we are weak, and so we ask for your help. We pray that we would be diligent to guard our hearts well, and even to plan for those times where we know we can be caught off guard. Father, we plead with you to make us women of discernment so that our actions and our lives bring you the glory that you deserve. Father, I pray that even as we prepare our own hearts so that we respond in a manner that's worthy of our calling, Father, I pray that we would also help our sisters in Christ, that we would be women who point one another to you, we would help one another to remember your promises of help to us and that we would help one another to keep our, our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.